I am thrilled to announce that An Actor Despairs is partnering with a wonderful CBD company called Kind Farms. Everyone out there has heard of CBD. I started taking it a few years ago when I first started getting sober and to help with my anxiety. Sadly, as one can do, I was overtraining in the gym, and a friend recommended a topical and a tincture to help with the pain. I tried it. It was okay. However, recently, I was introduced to a product that has really changed my life. Not only has it helped me with anxiety, but I am stronger than I have ever been. I'm able to carry out lifts my body used to prevent me from doing. Kind Farm products have single-handedly changed my life athletically and personally. They utilize 100% local licensed farmers, organic cultivation, and CO2 extraction for superior CBD. Kind Farms is turning CBD to a kind alternative to pharmaceuticals. Let's transform tobacco row into hemp row. If you want to get involved, please reach out. Together, we can make a difference. You can use my code RYAN10 for 10% off. You can find them on Instagram at KindFarmsInc, all one word. That's K-I-N-D-P-H-A-R-M-S-I-N-C. And their website is KindFarmsInc.com. Once again, my code for 10% off is RYAN10. And now, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Today on An Actor Despairs, we have an incredibly exciting episode with actor, musician, rapper, everything, showrunner, Raphael Cassell. It's very interesting. Uh, Rafa beat me out for a role. So when I got the email about doing this, I was like, you know, it, uh, he, the childlike actor in me was like, oh, man, he beat me. But he's incredible. He was so good in that role. And I'm so glad it went to a great guy. And he's crushing it right now. He's got his new TV show, Blind Spotting, adapted from his film, Blind Spotting. He's doing it all. I mean, it makes me feel like I need to be doing so much more. And he was so open and honest from his journey, from the perils of despair to having things happen and being with a big agent and being on set and working with people like Hugh Jackman, Ethan Hawke, and and learning and and never stop learning and, and learning to be a better person, to be a better artist. Raphael, I got so much love for you, man, and, and I really do want to work together one day, brother. Here it is. Rafael Cassell, welcome to An Actor Despairs. How are you doing, brother? Good. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks thanks for being on, man. I, I didn't want to say anything before to give it away, but it it's funny, man. You know, I, I first heard of you because I was up for Cook and the Good Lord Bird, and I fought for fucking two weeks to get that audition, and I wanted to hate, I wanted to fucking hate you, dude. But you're you're so talented, man, and I'm, I'm glad it went to a good actor, man. And 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 dude, you know, man, I I, I love Death Poetry Jam, and you know, I'm a big Saul Williams fan, and and uh, he, he he was uh, someone I really looked up to since high school, and 
man, I love all your work, dude. You're, you're incredible. And, uh, what you're doing, it's, it's awesome, dude. I love it. Thank you. I would have loved to see your cook. That would have been so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I knew as soon as I like said, I sent like four tapes in and then they sent me like six other parts to audition for. So I was like, ah, I'm not getting it. But, <laughs> <laughs> that's how it goes. I know I've been on the other side of that many times, but dude, I'm glad I went to a great guy, man. And, and I'm actually from Richmond, Virginia, oddly enough. So. Oh no but, shit. Yeah, man. So dude, I, I loved it there, man. Oh, it's great, man. I literally just got back yesterday. My mom's been a little, a little sadly. So, but uh, dude, we're we're here to talk about you, man. So, dude, you know, I, I discovered that film, Blind Spotting. I thought it was incredible, man. What you did with that, you know, I have a lot of love for you know the Oakland, you know, San Francisco type narratives. Like Last Black Man in San Francisco is one of my favorite films. My buddy scored it, and uh, dude, I, I I love what you and Debbie did on that, and now developing it into the show, man, it's incredible, and. and everything else you've been able to do, man, especially like teaching at, at university of Madison, Wisconsin and, and lyrically, you know, and poetically, dude, you're, I mean, you're a real artist, brother. <laughs> <laughs> well, someone thinks so. That's nice. <laughs> yeah, dude, in, 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 a, in a business where, you know, the phantom intersection of art and commerce is never, you know, right in the middle. It's, it's more oh. commerce than art. It, it's great to see an artist succeed, man. And I'm so, I'm so proud of you, dude. I mean, I know we're just meeting, but it, it, it gives me so much hope for, for myself and, and for all the others that are listening. I know, man, it's, it's justice prevailing, dude. Congratulations. Congratulations. It, it's Thanks, man. I, I, uh, I definitely feel like I'm, uh, I'm always kind of at the beginning of a new chapter of a thing. And so the congratulations always feels a little uh, early yeah um, but you know then someone starts to list off all the things that have happened and i go oh yeah it's been uh, been at yeah. this for 20 20 years of this um also man uh, uh sending sending good energy and love your mom's way i know you like really just grazed over that but oh, that, thanks, I, I heard what you just said about you, your mom going through a tough time so yeah yeah i really um, do appreciate that man i know she does too but uh dude let, let's start from the beginning so you grew up in oakland uh, I grew up in Berkeley, actually. I grew up in Berkeley, Berkeley California, okay. right Got outside it. of Oakland. Um, and Oakland's sort of our big city, right? So anybody who's ever lived like three feet outside of another city knows like your entire identity in life is sort of engulfed by by that place. And so I grew up in and around Oakland too, right? But I think wow. in many ways, Berkeley is, um, if for the people who know what that means, who are who are from the place and understand the historical context of Berkeley, California, and its relationship to the country, I think it does a really good job of contextualizing me and sort of this split personality between Berkeley and Oakland. Yeah. Um, and people from the outside of it kind of think of Berkeley as either UC Berkeley or they have some vague understanding of sixties and seventies protests on that campus. Totally. Um, and that's a very you know that that is not the Berkeley that I know, but I also recognize that as a nice entry point into understanding. What the city really is well that, that, then that's a, obviously leads to me to my next question were your parents like in education is that why you grew up there or no we have no relationship with the university whatsoever oh, wow. uh, oh. you know that's that's the thing about berkeley is like berkeley is a college town only to people who went to college there but the rest of us you know that's it's a, there's 120,000 people in berkeley there's 40,000 or so at the university and so there's this whole other city oh, that shit. that's a, um, a third that, wow that really is in many ways is like a, another appendage of oakland right it, it it even started as a province of of like northern oakland towns township or whatever and was created as sort of an independent city 
to house the people. I'm, I'm sure largely the people who are going to like clean the bathrooms and, and, and mop the halls of the university and became sort of this robust, um, you know, hardcore left-leaning liberal uh, enclave of the country, right? I feel like Berkeley is sort of widely known as like the liberal hub of the U.S. And and it, for my upbringing, for the 80s and 90s, it certainly, it certainly was. It's, it's gone through heavy gentrification now and it's very like, yeah, it's very very white and upper middle class at this point. But the the Berkeley that I remember was this wildly left alternative enclave of of American liberalism. And was there like a hippie zeitgeist with your parents? Were they a part of that culture or not really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, certain they weren't a part of sort of the the Cal Berkeley hippie yeah. zeitgeist, but they were a part of that that movement really heavily. I mean, my. My uh, my mother, my mother and father were certainly like big activists and, and have participated in sort of the the progressive world in some of the most radical ways that I can imagine. So much so that I think a lot of times they're not particularly comfortable with me talking about what their participation levels were. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you you know, we're so, in a time now where yeah, I get that. So no yeah, worries. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. there's there's certain stories that my mother's like, you can tell that story when I've died. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Got it, got it, got it, got it. Respect, respect. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome, man. So I'm so curious then, you know, like, did your parents, obviously, you know, kind of being sort of bohemian, did they have like an affiliation with the arts in any way? How did this whole thing start to happen for you? Yeah, I mean, uh, loosely, right? I mean, their art is sort of a bit different than mine. They were both, among many other things, they were they were um, radio DJs. They both, oh, were, wow. um, they both were hosting shows at KPFA. So they're um, and obviously they, huge music tastes, yeah huge music taste and big art lovers like we were a movie family we watched movies all the time like every indie film that came out my mother read everything about it and put it in front of us we were like a we were a cinephile family we sat down we watched a film and we talked about the implications of the film at length like we were one of those families like hard dissection of art at all times um and i think a lot of that was about probably probably got enhanced because my sister did did fairly well in school, but I was like a total kind of fuck up and eventually got expelled from high school and like, you know, like went that path. So I think art got ramped up as I was sort of disconnecting from traditional education. I think they were looking for a way for me to engage in some, in some way. And so I think music and for my pops bringing out, you know, a lot of his old radio equipment and encouraging that and me getting into music at like 13, 14, 15 and poetry yeah. and stuff. I think they just like, press the gas on that shit because everything else was going kind of to shit. Totally, man. And and you and I aren't far in age. So I know like, you know, we had record stores to go to and got that experience of like talking to people at Blockbuster. So, so tell me when did the, the gravitation towards like pursuing something in it, when did that start to ignite? You know, like, yeah, I, I mean, I think the I think the there was two things sort of happening at once in high school. Right. Like I was, I was on my way out. I think like the, the fighting and the troublemaking and the like, you know, me and my, me and my crew of guys were approaching that age where, where we were just going to start kind of fucking up and not going to school and, and, you know, getting into, you know, drugs and violence were becoming sort of really prominent. But I think the other thing that was becoming prominent is like the, the desire to stand out. Right. And I think so music became this big outlet for us. We were freestyling all the time. We were like writing raps on the backs of paper during class and like beating on tables and shit. And, um, there was a poetry slam in my high school, this, this thing I really never heard of. And so the whispers of that were going on. And then my folks showed me this, um, this film, they really like forced it upon me. They showed me this indie film called slam that saw Williams and Bosia done. Um, and I loved it. I remember I just really didn't want to watch it at the end of it. I was like, Oh man, I, I want to do that. I want to, 
I want to say what I mean in that kind of way. Um, and it was connected to like the rap, the rap music that I was starting to do with my friends. It was connected to sort of like this, this brewing on, um, uh, you know, an unarticulated anger that I had about, about a world that I was trying to pick apart for the first time. Yeah. And so I, I think I just started writing stuff and eventually like a, a, an English teacher of mine, this cat Rick Ayers saw it and was like, you know, you're, you're definitely going to fail this class, <laughs> but oh, if man. you, but if you, but if you go to this poetry event that's happening like in our school in the after hours and you perform this shit that you wrote on the back of my paper, like I will, I will pass you in my class and you'll get a D, but I will pass you. Yeah. Um, and my sister was really encouraging and like my sister was seeing me sort of slip by the wayside. I think she was really afraid for me. And so she was really encouraging. And so I went and it was weird. We had this weird thing going on at our high school where like, this poetry slam was popping. Like yeah. there were a lot of people there. There was 300, 400 kids there. And we had, you know, we had a school of about, you know, 3,500, 4,000 people went to our high school. So it was big. It was easy to get lost in the fray. And so here's this poetry slam where like a crowd of 300 of your peers are coming to like, listen to you spit for three or four minutes. It was exciting. I went up, I bombed, you know, I went up again, I bombed the next, next month went up again. I bombed. I wasn't one of these people that was immediately good at things, Yeah, me. you know, but I was yeah. not, I'm I not think it's so much cats. more interesting to like, to, I think any great hobby, part of being like great is, is fucking failing at something for so long to become great at it, you know, get, get, get comfortable yeah. with that feeling yeah. of sucking at something and yeah. knowing that you're going to get better and being able to like tune out the people who are like, eh, you like, know, what is fun it, is, is it, it to show up and like, you know, nail it on the first time? I mean, yeah, I'm sure that's good for your ego, but it's not yeah, good. It looked, it looked, yeah. it looked like a lot of fun. It looked like, people <laughs> were, you know, I, I wanted that feeling yeah. for sure, you know, yeah. but I, I think I worked at it and, and eventually got, you know, really good. And, and as I, as sort of school and the rest of my life was, was plummeting into the abyss, um, poetry i got really fucking good at performance poetry like really fucking good at it and that became my thing and then i was you know starting to tour and i was doing these big competitions and i was winning these competitions like local regional national ones you know each one kind um, of built up to the next one so this this was yeah. kind of the you know i don't i don't want to get too dramatic here but this was kind of the buoy life jacket that was thrown your way when school ended you know picking this up yeah yeah it was like so this was happening and this was a big turning point for me. It was pretty separate from the rest of my life. Like a lot of my boys weren't like super in love with the fact that I was doing poetry, but I think because there's a crowd, it was just cool enough to be like, all right, well, that's his thing. And people celebrate him for it. So dope. Yeah. And then we were doing music. And then this other thing uh, that I think at the time felt really inconsequential, but it's paid off pretty dramatically was happening. And that was that the local community college, if you were still enrolled in high school, which I was, I was at East campus, which is sort of like the place for the fuck ups to go. And if you were still enrolled, you could take free classes at the local community college. And so I went and I, I in my head, I was like, I'm just going to get trade skills. And so I went and I got Adobe Premiere training. I got Final Cut Pro training. I did oh, Photoshop. Man. I thought I you were going to say welding. Design. You got the best. Oh, man. Yeah. I did like, I did 3D animation. I did like everything I could in, in the media arts. And I finished their like two-year media program. Like about before I was 18 wow. and I used it really to go and start shooting music videos for friends and like shoot videos for nonprofits and like cut little things and, yeah. and like try to try to have this like side hustle. Cause I didn't think poetry was going to make any money. I'd say those two moments really now, now and in many sort of points throughout the course of my career have collided as this sort of support mechanism between art and being able to like capture master and distribute that art. Yeah. Um, 
and you know, and now I'm now I'm doing TV where they really where they really collide. <laughs> totally, man. And, and I'm curious. Then, obviously, doing well in these poetry competitions, you know, obviously, like it, it's hard, you know, to to not bring him up. But like Eminem and, and the success of that, you know, did that ever lead to? Because I think you know anyone that grew up around our time, like that was that was the dude who you looked to if you were a white guy into that kind of music. Did it like, were you thinking about putting out like a mixtape and, and doing this? Yeah. Yeah. We ended up putting out, I put out three albums and two mixtapes and it was, yeah. I mean, you know what, what, what Eminem did obviously was, was show you that there was a way to do it without being corny or while staying sort of really authentic to who you were. And so I think in the same way that like the poetry scene was all about authenticity and generally art is about sort of maintaining your authenticity through it. I think there was a, that was one of many roadmaps that maps that were presented. Right. Um, and so, yeah, music, music was happening constantly. We were always kind of like opening up recording studios and I'd taken those classes to learn pro tools and logic. And at the time it was this program digital performer that everyone was using. Yeah. Um, and the new Macs were just starting to come out. Like it was accessible, you know? So I was like selling up, I was selling like, you know, MDMA pills and weed and shit to buy my equipment and, you know, and navigate, navigate my life. Um, uh, (laughs) you know, and slowly me and a bunch of my, my boys from Berkeley and Oakland, you know, we're all, you know, squatted up in these little apartments we were getting at 18 and 19 and starting to record music. And in I was, now I, are you still in Berkeley? Uh, at that point I'm in South Berkeley on Blake street and our studio is in North Oakland on 54th or 59th. I can't remember. Okay. Um, and we had opened up a studio there um, and we had a bunch of different artists that were coming through and my crew. So the thing about Berkeley high is that Berkeley High is like a is like a waterhole for a bunch of other cities. So there's a ton of students from Richmond, a ton from Oakland, a ton from El Cerrito, San Leandro, like all over the place, right? So if you go to that school, you have friends from fucking everywhere. Yeah. And so we have this we have this sort of phrase where we talk about like, well, there's Bay Boys, and Bay Girls, and like people that are a little more transient. Yeah. And so like me and by extension, a lot of my boys and David eventually when me and him started making art, like we always refer to ourselves as Bay boys. Like we kind of, we kind of know about everywhere and spend a lot of time everywhere because we're transient. The minute we got cars or the minute you were, you know, old enough to ride the BART train by yourself, you're like, you're in every hood yeah. seeing your friends and hanging out. I'm trying to soak up game. We talk about soaking up game a lot in the Bay. Like game is really important. Where, where can I go? Who can I be around to just soak up, you yeah. know, generational knowledge from the older cats so that we don't have to work as hard or, or maybe that we don't have to go through the same hurdles. Work smarter, not harder, you know, work smarter. Yeah. And yeah. work smarter and harder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. And, and I'm curious, you know, man, like you were what you're fucking 18 when you did deaf poetry jam. Yeah. So then, you know, after doing like the national poetry slam, the youth national poetry slam a few times, uh, eventually I got recruited for deaf poetry with Russell and Camila Forbes and, 
I did three seasons, I think season four or five and six of that. And this is when YouTube is really starting to pop off, right? Yeah, so you people, know, people, before the internet ruined it, when you can post anything, you know? You can post anything, it, no yeah. one cared, you know? Yeah. So, so we were pirating our performances from Deaf Poetry and putting them on YouTube, and people hadn't really done that. And so it was easy to climb the, sort of climb the ranks of notable poets that were tourable. That's and awesome. so the minute, you know, some of those started hitting a million views, 500,000 views, which at the time was like a crazy amount of yeah. views on a video, especially a poetry video. Um, was, was it monetized back then? Were you making money? No, or? no. not at all. Yeah. But, but I could leverage a tour. Totally. You know, so I could go to the NACA conferences in the Midwest and I could get booked for like, you know, 30 colleges throughout a year. And I just jump around. You go to every like bumblefuck small town in the country and perform for 100 people and you make a grand or two. You know, and for an 18 year old, like if you're, if you're doing 30, 40 shows a year, you're making pretty decent money. Some of them suck. Some people, they stiff you on your money or, you know, you're, you're splitting the bill with five people and nobody's really eating that well or whatever, you know, but you're earning your chops the way like standup comedians go out and earn their chops on the road and kind of perform the shitty shows. Um, so that's happening at the same time that like I'm working at one drop Scott studio in South Berkeley, who was like a big producer for some of the biggest Bay artists of my upbringing. And I'm just engineering for anyone that comes through there. A lot of these motherfuckers don't even remember this shit, but like Mac Mall would come through there. Keep the sneak came through there. Mr. Fab came through there. They probably just thought I was the white boy at the board and they didn't even pay attention to who the fuck I was, but I was engineering all of their sessions for, for Scott and then learning how he was producing music. And were you making your own beats as well? Oh yeah. 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 So me, me and I had a buddy hog beats who rest in peace passed away, but like he, and I were doing a ton of music together and he was teaching me how to produce. And um, my boy wild man was becoming a producer and, and uh, we were all just kind of like making our own production, building equipment and just recording music and releasing it any way that we could. Yeah. Um, and so I think around 18 was the first 18 or 19 was the first like album album. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then we were just playing shows. So I'm like running around, you know, on weekends playing hip hop shows with me and my boys and my band and David is like, starting to come around. We just, he just kind of come through the studio for the first time. And so he was joining the crew and then I was going off on the weekends or like Fridays and Saturdays. And I was performing at like some random arts college in Ohio and then coming back. And then on a Monday I was like shooting a music video for another artist. and like trying to get 500 bucks to cut something for them to go on YouTube, which again was this new thing at the time. It's so far I did um, the same thing for hip hop artists. I, I did music videos, man. And so I relate to you and I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm curious then, you know, man, it's sorry to interrupt. Like, you know, it's if, when you went the non-traditional schooling path, you know, most of us for the curation, of knowledge and the criteria of what we're going to learn you know so much of it comes from like the syllabuses of or syllabi i guess the fucking plural of of you know we're going to read shakespeare and then we're going to go into greek so you know being in the poet who is curating you know all the great poets and and you know i'm sure that led you to shakespeare which led you to other things so like how were you curating the stuff that you were reading and, and acquiring you know, it didn't lead me to Shakespeare. I don't know that anyone was drawing that that connection to me um, really firmly. I, I was obsessed with my contemporaries and what I consider to be sort of the OGs of it, which are people that were maybe in hindsight only a few years older than me. But, you know, deaf poetry did provide a new generation of older poets to look up to. Um, and we were young, you know, like I think when I did the show at 18, I was the youngest person who had ever been on that show. 
by a lot. I think it was by like seven or eight years. I think, you know, everyone else was kind of in their like mid to late twenties and they had been poets. They've been poets for years without yeah. a TV show supporting them. So they were a different generation of performer. And so, you know, Saul, Saul obviously was the first person that I saw, but then came, you know, Lemon Anderson and Sheehan and sort of all these, um, all these, uh, contemporaries that eventually I would like be out on tour with. And, and they would, you know, they were showing me what it, what it, what, what it meant to do a, a 40 minute set of poetry, which was weird. You know, it was a weird thing to do. Um, and I think for me, I was watching that and going, all right, well, they do a 45 minute set by, they just read 12 of their poems. And like, I'm never going to be able to differentiate myself if I do that. So I'm going to craft like a whole performance piece around this. And I think in a, and to a lesser degree, it was a little bit reminiscent of like what Bo Burnham is doing now where like, yeah. he's got these, you know, I would do a couple poems and then I would do a couple songs and I would tell jokes in between. And it sort of had this, like, I would try to craft a through line through it. And that was it's my special, way. It's like, special, but it's not a one man yeah. show. Yeah. It's like in this weird. Yeah. And so I would awesome. go and they'd be like, it's your 45 minute block. Like, just get up there and do your thing. And I would just do a whole, I'd be like, all right, I, I, this is how I host a show about my art. Um, and I think it helped me sort of figure out what some of the through lines were between these seemingly disparate things that I was doing, where it was like, I was writing funny things like skits on YouTube that me and my buddies were starting to do. I was doing rap music and I was doing poetry. And I think everyone back home thought these were very separate buckets. But when I was on the road, I just kind of threw them all together. It was like, all right, well, this is just an expression of who I am. So if I, if I curate this and, and walk people through it, it'll make sense how all these things come out of one person. Yeah. Um, and it was fun. It was a, it was a it was a, a period of self discovery and also of understanding that art can be pretty fucking hybrid if you want it to be. Totally, that's so beautiful. And I and the performativity of all that. I mean, did that lead you to acting? You know what I mean? Like uh, uh, you're doing all this performance and all this energy is being allocated to you know exuding certain kind of behaviors and and words and inflections and tonal you know patterns. Like I'm. How did yeah, you- was, certainly in hindsight, right? Like, I, I don't know that I was like the only person I knew who was acting was David. David was in play. He was in plays. Uh, he was consciously you know? like he uh, in theater. He like got went it, to school it. for theater. He was he was in plays, and got he it. and I and a few other people were writing plays together because a lot of poets were going into long form, and a lot of those plays required that you performed in them yourself that was it was it was tradition to perform your own work and so my entry point into acting was really um rehearsing performing my own work which now in hindsight i go that was those are just monologues these are scenes you are channeling an emotion that you are not currently actually feeling you're finding your way back into it it's all the same temples of acting but i don't think i understood them to be um gateway art forms into acting and really to a certain degree so is rap music i mean a rap show if done well has sort of all these ebbs and flow of a really great theater piece if yeah. you do it well. Um, and so I think it was really intuitive for me to sort of step over and start doing that. But it was really self-serving at the time. It was just like, oh, I wrote this funny sketch for YouTube. I think we should do it. It necessitates that I act in it. I think you and I would be really good scene partners. Let's just do it. Fuck it. You know, and then slowly taking acting classes to just to sharpen the blade a bit, you know, but a lot of it was getting in front of an audience on the road in these hundred, 200, you know, person shows I was doing by myself. And I would just try shit. I'd be like, I'm going to lean really heavy into this. I'm going to try really dry versions of comedy. I'm going to try, you know, 
And it really allowed me to have this experimentation period, which really I can only comp to the, to the way some of my stand-up friends talk about their early days of comedy, yeah. where they're sitting there with a notepad next to the stool and they're going, oh, I didn't fucking work. And they do the next thing and the next thing. And I, I sort of had a similar, a similar experience, but I did it with, with my own writing and, and theater, which I think felt more akin to maybe what Mike Birbiglia does or what Spalding Gray was doing or what Carlin was doing in some of his early bits, not to compare myself to people that are significantly. No, I understand exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But just in terms of like the proximity to a similar muscle, when I watch those things, I go, Oh, I see that they're wrestling with the same things that I was wrestling with early on. I I love it, man. And, and, and your work is incredible. I mean, it's truly going back and, you know, watching, I think what I I think you were 18. It's, it's, I mean, I would kill to be able to speak like that. And, and so the, you know, for actors and for musicians, you know, for actors, it's finding your voice for a musician. It's, it's finding your tone, your style, you know, for, for a poet, for an artist, for, you know, someone that's doing all of this, is it, it, is it finding your flow? Is it finding your energy? Like what, what was the process of finding, I guess your, your style, let's call it that, you know? Yeah, I mean, I'll let you know when I find it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Touche. <laughs> I, I, I think it's changing all the yeah. time, right? It's, it's, it's. Um, but you are always sort of chasing this, this constantly evasive um, sincerity about yourself, right? And as you grow, it moves, and then you have to find it again, and you grow, and you discover something new about yourself, and you have to find it again. But I do think, like, you are we are always trying to find our most authentic version of our voice because truth is really palatable, man. Like especially well-packaged sincerity um, that is, that is, you know, thought provoking and sincere is something that audiences, we know this time and time again, audiences really sort of resonate with that. Um, And so I think for poetry, it was always like, well, what is important for me to talk about in the body that I live in for the three minutes that I'm on stage? And then as it got longer, like, all right, well, if I'm going to take up an hour of these people's time, like what what point am I getting to, or am I just feeding them a bunch of like snacks of ideas I haven't fully you know processed? Um, and so I th- I think that started to be the meditation, right? So then I started doing albums that were like, well, this whole album has a theme. You can't just listen to one song. You kind of got to listen to the whole thing, or you got to kind of come see the whole show. Yeah, I think that became the investment in like, all right, well, as you create longer work, what does that necessitate you to be you know for you to be good at? And what, you know, what tools and, and, um, and skill sets am I going to have to like continue to get better at in order to, to, um, to earn people's attention for that amount of time. And that's the difference between like, oh, I made a good song and I made a good album or I wrote a good poem versus I put on a good show, you know? I love that. And, and I'm curious then, you know, when you said you started doing these classes, you know, earlier doing a callback, we talked about like sucking at something to become better and better at it. I imagine, (laughs) you know it's no secret, you know, to anyone who's not even an actor that's listening that when you go to an acting class, not everyone is great. And part of it is that's a beautiful thing about it. I'm curious for you, Raphael, when you went in that acting class, because you had, you know, 40 shows a year and you were going to all these venues, did you feel confident going up there and, and doing text, whether it was from a play, from a monologue, from a classical piece, or, or did you still feel like, okay, I got to suck at this to get good at it too? No, I think you suck at it too. I think there yeah. was a lot of, there was probably a lot of false confidence. You know, I think yeah. I had a lot of practice reading lines to an audience. And so there's elements of acting that I think I don't have to, I did at that point, didn't have to jump over 
because one, first of all, let's be clear, like the stakes in a, in a community college acting class are pretty fucking low. Yeah. (laughs) So like (laughs) getting up in front of an audience and just being like, I can recite this thing without being um, paralyzed by pure fucking terror is, is, is an asset right away. Right. But, but the thing that you don't get in performance poetry that maybe you get a little bit more from trying to do a bit of comedy or trying to do a bit more theater is, is how to play something sort of small and delicate and fragile. Right. And that's, and, and that, that is very different also between the stage and between screen acting, right. Oh, yeah. Which is a lesson I'm constantly learning is like how to engage with the lens as opposed to the audience, how to, how to create intimacy with an audience 20 minutes into a piece, as opposed to trying to get it, you know, in the first minute because you're insecure and you want them to like you, you know, I, I think the, the, the navigating of an audience's emotional reaction to the way in which they perceive you is, is a, a massive um, undertaking and while you can have like some natural skill at it, it takes, everyone has to, has to do the work. Yeah. You know, you, you have to have to do the work. And I, and I, I say that being still in the process of doing that work, you know, like there isn't sort of a, Oh, and then I, then I did acting classes for two years and then I was an actor. Right. Like every time I do an audition or I do a role, I go, Hey, I have to earn being an actor today. Yeah. Um, because it's a muscle that will also slip away from you so quick. If you forget totally. the temples of what it means, right? Like it's not, it, it, it isn't muscle memory for me in the same way. Like I, there is a, there's a ritual for me to like remind myself, you're not a musician at this moment. You are not a producer at this moment. You are not, you are just here as a vessel for somebody else's text. Um, and all your job is, is to make this feel real. Um, that's really beautiful. I, yeah. I love, how I, I think those, thank you. I think, I mean, I think those acting classes are really just that, right. It was like, uh, it was a, a training ground to to figure out what does it mean to remain sort of present and sincere when there's a lot of indicators that this isn't real, yeah, <laughs> you know? Totally. And, and I feel like, you know, just like the natural instinct sometimes as, as, as men when we're growing up is to like clown on your homies when they're doing the thing, you know? So your boy David is, is doing theater and then you start doing it. Was there ever like, you know, kind of like, yo, that's my thing. Or was it like, yo, let's do something together and a real positive. There was really that. It was a lot of like, Oh shit, you want to do that? Let's do that together. You know, that's it was, awesome. it was a lot of me. Yeah. It was a lot of me. Like I would write things or David, you know, and I would write something. And I'd be like, you know, oh, maybe I'll be in it. And I think David is is another multi-hyphenate artist and would be like, no, you should just do it. You know, like you can totally, you t- I think because he's also an educator, like it's really easy for him to see when somebody has the potential to be able to achieve something with some encouragement, you know? And so I think he and I have a very, he, he and I's dynamic is like wildly encouraging. Yeah, Like it is, the, the base like- of it really is like, damn, I literally believe you can do anything if you, if you try, if you try it and you take it seriously and I, and I know what it looks like when David gets obsessed and he knows what it looks like when I get obsessed and we both know if that happens, eventually we will get good. Um, and so I think when, when more and more acting opportunities were coming up for me, I think it was just like, at least from him, it was like a constant, like, yeah, acting's not that fucking hard. Let's do it. You know, we'll, we'll do this scene together. And I think that, you know, that, that, that kind of encouragement early on when you're trying anything is going to is going to get you there a lot faster than a a circle of people that are. And there's those people too. Don't get me wrong. Like when I was doing poetry and I switched over to music, everybody was like, stick to poetry. When I was, when eventually I was on music, 
and nobody remembered that I did poetry anymore. And then I started switching to acting and was like, but what about your music career? You're like, there's always a crowd of people that want to keep you where you are. And I do think like you have to sort of assemble an inner circle of people that don't give you the sort of parameters if you want to expand. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, you know, you know, that phrase, um, Jack of all trades, but a master of none. Yeah. hundred percent. You know, that phrase is longer than that. I did that expression. That. that expression actually goes, Jack of all trades is a master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one wow. is the actual expression. And I find that fascinating that we don't know that. <laughs> <laughs> That's clipping, you know? I'm clipping that. <laughs> you know, like, I, 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 but I think it's, I think it's wild yeah. that like yeah. a society of people shortened it because it was better for most people. Yeah. But I, but I, I really am like hard in the camp of like, get good at a bunch of stuff yeah. because really most of the people I know who are celebrated for the work they do aren't masters at that shit. Yeah. They're not. We don't celebrate masters. We celebrate like 17-year-old child prodigies who are just getting good at stuff. Like we celebrate totally. people for where they are and their trajectory. Yeah. And I just I think it's fascinating to watch people get good at shit. Yeah. Um, I think that's just as entertaining as watching a master. And so like I was always like, I'm trying to be all the shit I'm interested in. I'm trying to be good at all that shit. Yeah, um, that's what that's what keeps me going as an artist. And, and I'm curious, you know, obviously, I, you know, I could talk to you for hours, but we're skipping a few years here. Where did, you know, it, at first it, it was a movie, Blind Spotting, you know, everyone check it out. And now it's a TV show on stars. Badass. Uh, where did the early impetus and iterations of, of this project come from? It's happening like not not too far after that time. It's probably happening right around the time I'm like 21 or 22, which means David was, he's four years older than me. So he's probably like 25, 26. And, um, and we get, a, I, I get approached by this woman, uh, Jess Calder through like YouTube DMs, which I don't think are a thing anymore. And she had seen a bunch of my poetry videos on YouTube and was like, have you ever thought about writing a screenplay? And I was like, well, we have dreamed about it, but not practically thought about it because who the fuck makes movies, but people in LA. And we didn't know any. But she was really, really pushy and like me actually thinking about how poetry would work in a, in a film. And so I spent like a year or two just talking to Jess and, and her partner, producing partner, Keith Calder. And, um, and eventually, you know, we would hang out and they would have me come through to events. And sometimes I would perform at their events. And there was one that I couldn't do uh, that was in DC. And it was, um, but David was there. And I was like, look, my boy, David is, he's not a, really a poet, but he's a rapper. And like, I don't really think there's much of a distinction between the two if it's good, you know? So he yeah. can perform at your event and I think you'd really get along with him. And so he did it and they really hit it off. And I think right around then the four of us were like, well, why don't we just do a project together? And I think that's really when sort of we assembled this idea of like, let's make a movie. And then it was like, I think Oscar Grant had just been killed in Oakland I was living in the Midwest at the time I was teaching at UW Madison while I was like taking 21 units at night. So my students yeah. wouldn't know that I didn't have a bachelor's degree. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm like teaching creative writing and theater and trying to work on this screenplay. And we decided while to running do this. their program. Don't short yourself. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, yeah while, while running the, the first wave program at UW Madison and, and uh, try, trying to teach undergrads who were like three years younger than me. And, um, uh, a whole other story. Um, but you know, eventually I think we, we realized we wanted to tell a story about the Bay. Um, this thing had just happened in Oakland. We had been, you know, I'd been living, uh, in, uh, West Oakland and East Oakland a few years before I moved to the Midwest. David was living in Oakland at the time. And we were like, well, let's write a story about what it means to live in a city where shit like this happens. Cause we'd experienced that shit all growing up. And, um, and then I, I wrote, there's a scene in the movie, this scene where the, um, the two main characters, Miles and Colin, are debating 
um, uh, not so much the use of the N word because Miles doesn't use it, but more so the behavior that Miles um, participates in that is particularly dangerous to well, Colin. That, and Colin and Colin yeah. uses that word to articulate the difference between them. Um, uh, my and favorite, I wrote, favorite line of the movie. Or are you talking about you know you're the, the out here they're looking for? You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think, uh, so I wrote like a really early version of that scene and I sent it to David in the middle of the night. And I was like, Hey man, look at this. Like I, I, I'd be really interested in a movie that was about two characters getting to the point where they had to have this conversation. Um, and I, I someday I'm going to find that old email and see like how much it resembles what we eventually put yeah, in the movie. But, but I remember we like got on the phone and we just talked about it. Cause me and David don't have those kind of arguments. I think we have the vocabulary to sort of, be beyond those but that is the conversation that most people would have it's uncomfortable it's men who are unable to articulate themselves trying to have a really complicated discussion about survival um and david and i can articulate ourselves very well to each other but we also are men who wrestle with the the machismo that oftentimes prevents you from having those conversations with people i think i grew up very like a very hardened person that really could only express myself on stage and not really in my personal life um, and so I think the movie in a lot of ways was the beginning of trying to articulate a circumstance of a place, um, in a medium that we had never attempted before, which was this, this essentially a, a stage play we were going to turn into a film. Wow. Um, and then, you know, and then for the next 10 years, we would pick it up and put it down based on the opportunity to make it sort of presenting itself and then, you know, going away. And that happened three or four times where we almost made it and then it died and almost made it and then it wow. died and you know, experience like the brutality of the heartbreak of trying to make a movie. Um, and then finally, you know, after we had moved, David and I moved to LA and we had tried to, you know, I, we, he had tried his hand at acting. I pushed music as far as it seemed like the industry was going to let me go. I remember at the and time. And had he I done Hamilton at this point yet? Or No, no. Yeah, this is, we, yeah. we're, we're in LA for five years. So much happens in LA as our artistic career is just like fucking plummeted into obscurity. And, um, uh, you know, we really got ate up by the, by the town and couldn't break through the, the ceiling. And, and, and then, and then um, if you don't mind, you know, I, I, how did you, how did, you know, I mean, this show's called an actor despairs. How, how did you anchor yourself during that time? Because a lot of people would have just said, fuck it, yo. I'm like, I'm, I'm going to go back to poetry. Like, how did you have the audacity to have hope, you know, and keep going? <laughs> uh, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I think when I got to LA, I put out, I put out my third album. It did really, it did really well in terms of like the downloads, but like the tricky thing about the internet and music is it's so disparate people that the even if like 30 or 40,000 people like downloaded your project and listened to it, there's like, you know, five in this town and seven in this town. But, you know, you look at the analytics. I got like, 156 yeah. episodes of this show and I know it well, bro. You know, it's all over. <laughs> yeah. so like, touring, yeah. it becomes very hard, right? Yeah. And I think at the time, like, I was like rapping and singing on stuff and like that really wasn't a thing. I think Drake was sort of still an anomaly in terms of that category. I remember Childish Gambino was starting to move up and I would reference Donald's career in meetings with labels and they'd be like, we don't fuck with it. This is before hit oh, Atlanta. Had really yeah. Hit. yeah. Yeah. Atlanta's yeah. not really a thing yet, you know? And so I think it was just a weird time for trying to get the kind of music that I was trying to make on. And David was, you know, I think even further left than I was, he really wasn't a commercial rapper in that context. So he put out his album, nothing really happened at all. Um, people were particularly adverse to his music. And so, so then he started this band clipping with his boys who were doing noise music. I think in part, just like a rebellion of being like, well, fuck it. If people aren't going to listen to my shit, I'm going to make some really weird, like high concept shit. And he started doing that. 
And then I, um, I started just looking for like odd jobs to fucking survive, man. So I'm like, I'm doing web series stuff online. I'm like, we should, we should shoot. I did this show called the away team on YouTube. Yeah. Me and Debbie started doing this. We started remaking these Calvin and Hobbes strips as a web series. No so it was way. like take a strip of Calvin and Hobbes and he would play Hobbes and I play Calvin as adults. And we would just recreate the strips and those got really popular. Um, and we would release little music videos here and there to like, keep our, keep our audience engaged. But it just like, we were just, we were just hitting a fucking ceiling, the same ceiling we'd hit in the Bay. We'd gotten on the radio in the Bay and then moved to LA. And it was like, damn, we like really can't climb this ladder anymore. And so I, first I ended up working for this website Upworthy, which was like blowing up at the same time that Buzzfeed was, which was making like really interesting, like positive YouTube content go viral. So I got really good at making things go viral. Um, and like leveraging Facebook and all this stuff to like, to, to get high traction on things, which was helping our own art a little bit by like, how you label a thing, yeah. you know, what kind of supplementary materials marketing you put out. Marketing and all but, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got, got heavy into marketing. And then I'm uh, doing a poetry show in Utah. I met this dude, Peter Kim, who's a CEO of a, of a premium denim company called Hudson Jeans. And he asked me to, to start following him around and helping him to write his book. Um, he wanted to write this business book. And I was like, I just need a fucking writing job. Like, I don't give yeah. a shit. And so I, I started, I signed this NDA and started following him all over the world. And we went like all over Europe, Central America. Like we just kind of like, I was just following this dude's career. We became really, really good friends. Um, and sort of through the course of him getting to know me and me learning everything about his business, um, he brought me into his company on a very like high level. Um, and so my life went from like struggling artist to like fairly well-paid marketing executive for like two years um, of this, of this company. And I like, I totally like just went the other way. I was like, oh. let me just, I'm going to just try to make some money. Yeah. Cause like this struggle has gotten so real, man. Like we've been at this shit for, I've been at this shit since I was 14 and it's always just been so painful. Yeah. I just, I want to just feel what it feels like to not be so fucking broke that I can't see straight. You know, like I remember right before that, I was like cutting out Carl's junior coupons with my girlfriend in like deep East LA. It was just like, fuck this like you know yeah fuck this and like and someone offered me like real bread to to like learn the business world he's like a you know a hundred million dollar company ceo and he's this you know fucking korean dude who just like gets me and we became really good friends and he's like i'm gonna teach you about this money shit and i was like oh bet you know and so for two years i was running around with him with his company um and totally just like lost myself in it man like like i'll at some point i'll write something about that period but like going from an artist into like the fashion world like the women's high-end fashion world yeah as a writer was like at first you're like oh i'm just here studying for something i'm gonna write later and then eventually you're just that dude yeah you're just you know and david was watching me go through that while he's like in clipping mode he's like stopped auditioning he's like delivering tacos for like some early version of uber eats type shit and like we're both like we're both in such obscurity from all of our goals we're like we're just struggling artists we're gonna make our money some other way and we'll make our art and no one will ever fucking see it and we had really gotten pretty like settled in that you know like i guess we're just gonna be lucky if we even make a dime off of our art in our lives um, and the movie was so far in the rear view, like our producing partners had gone hard into the horror genre. Like it was not happening. And then, then Diggs got, uh, he was a part of this, this group called the freeze in San Francisco. It was part of, it was like a really obscure improv music group that was a spinoff of freestyle up Supreme, which was Lynn's group. 
But Lynn's, Lin-Manuel Miranda's group would tour Freestyle Love Supreme, and sometimes they would take people from the freeze in the Bay. And so Lynn and David knew each other from that shit. Wow. And Lynn starts, you know, I had seen, I had taught uh, curriculum around yeah, New York. You class at the public theater, don't you? Or Well, now we do, yeah. But yeah. I, when I was teaching at UW-Madison, we taught sort of the changing aesthetics in theater. Anything from like Lemon Anderson's um, uh, uh, County of Kings to Passing Strange, which came out through the Berkeley Rep and then the public theater and then Broadway Coleman, Coleman's a friend. He did the show. Yeah. Coleman, Coleman had done a number of his solo shows when yeah. he came to UW-Madison when I was Coleman's teaching there. Coleman's he yeah. did his show for us there before yeah. he, before he did it, you know, in New York. And, and at that time, Lynn had done in the Heights. So I had, I've been tracking the progression of Lynn's career. And so when Lynn called Dix to be like, Hey, I'm working on this thing. Of course we were all like, Hey man, go, you should really go be a part of those workshops. Cause that shit might be dope. It might be big. Like he did do a Broadway show. And so Dick starts going to these workshops um, in New York for Hamilton, which of course, like we thought was a fucking stupid idea, but yeah. probably do well, you know, <laughs> It's always how it goes. Oh yeah, sure. You know, like, it, historic like black presence. <laughs> it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't yeah. like a, it, it wasn't an intuitively good idea. And the yeah. raps are kind of, you know, like all love to to Lynn in the way that he makes makes his music. But like two rappers, it is kind of corny, you know. So we're yeah. like, I don't know, you know. But but then again, like Broadway likes that shit, so maybe it's going to do well. And so Dig starts doing these workshops, and eventually the show starts really taking off, you know. And at that point, I'm really at the at my wit's end with this with this this other career, this this weird vacation career I've been in. I'm like, yo, man, no, I'm definitely an artist. Like, I'm not supposed to be doing this shit. Like, all I do at night is come home and write. And I was doing like a I was doing this um, web series at the time called The Rafa Ticks, where I'd wake up at six a.m., read all the news, and would try to um, do these like five minute comedy bits on on Instagram and YouTube to write like set up punchline, set up punchline, like a la the daily show or the Colbert report. Cause yeah. I really just wanted to see if I could be a writer on one of those shows. I was like, maybe yeah. I'll go and I'll, I'll try to be a writer. In, in, in work. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, there's a writing job. I think I could actually get like, I'm yeah. fucking funny. And I know about punchlines, you know, and they do musical numbers there too. I'll be a, you know, those are variety shows. I'll be a huge asset. So I'm yeah. doing this thing and it's getting a lot of traction every once in a while. One of them is going viral, 500,000 views, 300,000 views in a day. Right. And, um, and he's, you know, and he's popping off in New York and I'm like, dude, I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to try to get on one of these talk shows, like in the writer's room of one of these shows. And that's how I'll get my career off the, off the ground as a writer and out the hole. And I'll be there and, and to support you while you're doing Hamilton. And Diggs is like, I wasn't going to ask you to move, but that'd be really tight if you did, <laughs> you know, because yeah. he moved. A lot of people don't get that, but David didn't want to move to LA. I've hella forced his hand. Yeah. <laughs> so he had sort of like, he moved somewhere under the pressure of me. So I was like, I'll move to New York. Like, yeah. you don't got no friends there and you're getting real famous and shit. Like, you, some, somebody got to be there to be like in your fucking corner yeah. that isn't, there aren't these new managers and agents and shit that are swarming you that are around when the money starts coming in. Is that, yeah. yeah. You know, it's getting, it's getting weird and you're alone, yeah. you know? And I appreciate that shit now because, like, then my world started to get weird like that. And I really appreciated that I had a few close friends around to keep me a fucking level. So I moved to New York. I applied for a program at the Public Theater as a writer. I didn't get into that shit. So I started building the Bars Lab separately as this incubator for artists who wanted to work in verse because a lot of people were getting excited about Hamilton. Um, And we knew that the intersection of verse and theater is centuries old it didn't start with what lynn was doing and so i really wanted to create a lab that would contextualize the intersection of verse and theater and connect it to the sort of 
the history of, of practitioners that predate this this um this moment of mainstream appeal, right? Like it's it's important that you know Limo Miranda's work, but it's also important to know that like he also stands on the shoulders of like the hip hop theater festival and Camila Forbes and Marco Mutti Joseph and Danny Hawk and like Reggie, uh, uh, you know, all, all these sort yeah. of amazing, uh, amazing artists that that were pregnant, Lemon Anderson and all these people were practitioners of that work. And so we created this Eric lab. And the, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's endless. It's endless, yeah. endless, yeah. endless. Right. Passing Strange was a big sort of influence for a lot of that stuff. And so I think like created this lab outside of the public oscar eustace who runs the public saw the lab because i would i would do these big filmings of the finer performances that's like the filmmaker in me is like let's shoot it and put it on youtube um and uh and film them and then then oscar eustace at the public saw it and was like this needs to be a public program and i just didn't mention that i had not gotten into their program <laughs> and and suddenly like you know i wasn't applying for a program that they had but i was now the artistic director of a program that was now had applicants that were coming from their other programs and you know now we're in our what our sixth year of running a program at the public theater which is wild wow. um a lot, i feel like a lot of my career has been these like side door things like that where i'm like well yeah. cool if i'm not you know if i'm not the traditional applicant or i'm not the traditional model i'll just get in this other way um and then, you know, and then David got off of Hamilton and, and there was a moment there where we had like a month or two free. And I think Moonlight ha- had just sort of beat out La La Land during the Oscars. And there was that big debacle about La La Land yeah. being announced and then Moonlight winning. And I drunkenly sent a text to the producers who had once wanted to do blind spotting with us and had developed it with us and said, you know, we, we wrote a Moonlight for us, like our version of that. I wish we could have made it. Yeah. Um, I think I was just like sort of angry that we had let that slip by and forgot all about it. And like three days later, they called and were like, Hey, if we funded it right now, would you and David make it? Um, and I called David and was like, Hey, they want to, you know, they want to do it. Would you do it? He's like, I mean, I'm busy as fuck now. Like, we had so many years, to <laughs> yeah. do that. you know, I would love to do it, but like when, you know, and he was like, I only have this month in June and we haven't looked at the script in three years and I can only shoot it that June and I can't take a break before that. So he was like, if you want to do a page one rewrite of that motherfucker and just call me on the phone and we'll figure it out in the few hours I have a day that are free so that we can shoot it in a month and a half, then I guess, yes, we can do it. But that sounds crazy, Rafa. Do you really want to do that? And I was like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> why not? <laughs> I, absolutely, I absolutely do. Yeah. Which I, I recognize is my role in the group is to yeah. be like, yeah, we can fucking do that. You know, a uh, little blind optimism. Yeah. Um, and so I sat down with Je- Jess and Keith came to New York two days later. And we're like, how are we going to do this? Do you want to direct it? Like, can you, you know, do you think the script is ready to go? Should we do rewrites? How do you want to do this? And like, as I'm sitting there, I'm just going, I can't rewrite this and produce it with them and act in it and get the Bay ready for us to do, you know, also navigate the Bay area in the pre-production phase and direct this shit. There's just no way I'm going to fucking drop the ball. And I, I wasn't far enough along in my career to know that like when you're tapped, you're tapped, Yeah, you know? So I had coffee planned right after that meeting with Carlos who ended up directing the film. Um, and because he had, I had brought him on. He had directed a few of David's music videos, his clipping videos, and so I had brought him on to do the be the shooting director for the stuff I was doing at the public. And so I was meeting with him to talk about the next season of the shit at the public. And I was like, you know what? I know a cat who will like listen to me and direct it the way that I want the movie to look, but will do the job. 
you know, so I can focus on other stuff. And so the three of us just went over and like crashed my coffee with Carlos. And I was like, Hey man, I'm about to go to LA tomorrow to start working on this movie. Do you want to come and direct this shit? And he was just kind of like, without reading anything, was just kind of like, all right, <laughs> you Damn. know? And, uh, and then he read it that night and was like, yeah, totally. Like, it's not there yet, but I see what you guys are going to do. And I'm like, yeah, it's three years old. Let me fucking yeah, change yeah. it, you know? And, uh, and then the next, you know, the next day we were on a plane to LA and started the rewrites and starting to get all the production together. So we had this, so we could take advantage of this 22 window day window and David's schedule to shoot the movie. And, and, and dude, just want to be like, how are you on time? Are you, are you, okay? I'm fine, man. Okay, You're cool. Good. All right, cool. Um, so, so you do this, man, and then you have this window. And so are you obviously, you know, you have to get the script done no matter what. So how long do you have from getting in LA to June? I think we got there middle of March or something like that. Holy we got there shit. middle of March. You had two months. Yeah, probably about two months. And then we were going to get to the Bay like middle of May for the pre-production on site. And then we were probably had like three weeks of pre-production in LA three or four weeks before we were starting. And like, you know, really this is all, this is all on the strength of Jess and Keith having been incredible film producers. Cause me and David sure as fuck didn't know what we were doing. Yeah. And like the biggest production I'd ever run was maybe like a budget of 150,000 when I was doing marketing stuff for like a, a, a video piece for that company and a, a spread in Vogue or some shit. Yeah. So I understood logistics, but I didn't know what it took to make a movie totally. for real, you know? And, um, and so I'm, you know, I'm in their office every day doing drafts. I do like, you know, a couple scenes a day and send them upstairs to them and they would give me notes and send them back down. And then, you know, I would do a rewrite. I'd call Davi, be like, all right, look, here's what I did last night. Justin Key said this, I rewrote this, read these pages real quick. You need to read them and go, oh man, add something like this. And what about this? And make those changes. And then I hand them to Carlos and then him and our DP Robbie would go off and they'd start storyboarding how they were going to shoot it. Um, and we did it like scene by scene like that. Wow. Um, and then Jasmine, who's now the lead of our show, yeah, was Steve in Jones. L.A. Yeah, Jasmine yeah. Cephas Jones was in L.A. because Anthony was shooting. Her, her partner, fiance, now Anthony Ramos, was in L.A. shooting something else. I can't remember what it was, but he was working on on something. And I think it was, I think he was working on music, actually. I think this was the beginning of him really getting into music. So Jasmine was with him in LA and she was having a terrible time. She was like, not, you know, not booking anything. People weren't taking her seriously. I think in a lot of ways, like there were a few people from Hamilton that really got the like star power love and other folks who really had to work their asses off for it. And I think like, and Jasmine are great examples of people that really had to work to make sure that people understood the talents that they were. But that was a really unsuccessful trip for Jasmine. But we were going to do a a, 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 a quick read down of the script, a, a, you know, a read through of the script at the office. And Jasmine was like going to leave in a day. And I was like, hey, why don't you come through here and just read all the parts for the women in the script? So because I know you'll do a great job. And she came and she read. I think that was the first time we were like, oh, shit, maybe Jasmine is in this movie. Yeah. Um, and we held a bunch of auditions and we considered a lot of really other amazing actors. But ultimately, it was like, I think me and Jasmine were becoming really fast friends at that point. And it was like, we have a really great dynamic. Why don't we just like, I'm not a super well-trained actor, you know, like I've, I've had some training, but this is, this is not me. You know, some people are like, Oh, you get 10 guest roles. And then maybe one day you get a lead. Yeah, this yeah, was yeah. like right into the fucking lead, you know? So I was like, I want scene partners that are experienced. So I wanted to be pinched between David, my best friend, who I know I have a great dynamic with and somebody who's also a close friend who like, we can sort of guide each other through this. Um, and so we cast Jasmine and she came back and did the, did the film. Um, 
And how was yeah. that shooting that, man? I mean, two months pre-production and you jump in and are you running with your head cut off or are you having the Yeah. Blast? Yeah, we're doing 38 locations in 22 days. Oh my God. You know, we're, we're running all over the city. Like nobody believes we're really making a movie because people don't make movies in the Bay. So nobody knows what the fuck we're talking about. We're like, oh yeah, we're shooting a movie on this corner. Come through and be extras. Like no one's showing up. Because they don't know, they think we're lying. Yeah. You know, or they think we're like overstating what we're doing. Yeah. You know, and um, yeah, all kinds of shit happened, man. I got like a concussion. I was in the hospital. We had to come back to do reshoots in August. And, you know, there was, there were so many moments of, you know, will this ever even get finished? Like, how does this even work? And just looking at our producing partners, Jess and Keith, and being like, is this normal? And they'd be like, kinda, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, and then, you know, and then we got in it, you know, we, America, you know, as a miracle, we got the movie finished getting shot at that point, sort of Carlos really handed the movie back to us and was like, do what you must, you know? And so then I went into the edit with Jess, mostly Jess Calder, um, with sort of digs, uh, and, and Keith being a little satellite, they'd come in sort of once a week and give notes, but me and Jess were, me and Jess were in that room every day yeah. you know, working on this, getting this movie right. Um, and then we submitted it to Sundance and had to sort of hold our breath for two months to see if we'd get in there. And then it got in there and then we yeah. got the opening night and then we got it was the huge bidding war started. So that must have felt great. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's, it, you know, when you read about it, it sounds like so, it's so like obvious. People were just like, like now they'll write reviews of the show and they'll be like, you know, critically lauded, successful indie feature blind spotting. And I was like, at Sundance, it was very divided. It was like there was a, a oh, group of people wow. that loved it. And there was a group of people that were like, what the fuck was that? You yeah. know, like it, it really was a device. Like it, it, it was a movie that, that, that really was, you know, splitting the audience down the middle. And it would be like, good review, bad review, good review, bad review. You know, yeah. and the good reviews were like, fuck, this is the most interesting thing we've seen in years. And the bad yeah. reviews were like, what the fuck were they trying to do? It did not work at all. You know, and luckily when it got out. Into but that's how, you know, you make great art because like, you know what I mean? If it, if it's anything but that, then, you know, you're, you're playing it safe. That's what, I mean, that's how I always felt. I was like, yeah. you know, I, I, because I would read the articles that didn't like the movie and I'd be like, oh, but they were never going to like it. They hate this convention and they yeah. don't believe these characters. It's like, oh, well, if you don't know someone like Miles or you don't believe that David's character could be that kind and also that violent. Like you also just like fundamentally don't understand the world we're playing in, and maybe and you're you not accepting the rules it. and circumstances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get the fuck yeah. out of here. Fuck you. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Just, you're you're yeah. you're not a part of the uh, yeah. of the world that this is talking. You're about. You're not so my demo, like, bro. Slide out. Yeah, yeah slide <laughs> the fuck out. Um, yeah. sit, sit the fuck down. Let yeah. somebody who knows this should yeah. talk about it. Um, so yeah, I mean, and then the movie was out, and it you know it did fine. You know, it's it's an. Were, it's an indie, you, it's mean, an indie, it, darling. It, it, were you happy with it yourself for all the time? Dude, that got? Uh, yeah, a movie came out. I, yeah. I, I still can't believe that That's a movie a coup, came out and that, that like, people be, saw it, you know. Be proud of that, brother. I'm proud of you, man. Fucking That's hey. it. Dude, yeah, for me, it was like, it, dude, I mean, like, think about it. We're having this fucking conversation <laughs> on a podcast. Your movie got into Sundance that you fucking sat on and went and did some other crazy job and then came back to and you made it happen, bro. That's the fucking coup, man. I think it stays in that lane of like, it, it really fits in the narrative for me of like, do a thing, get a little better, do a thing, get a little better and be really calculated with it, you know, and I think. I also, and I have this fear about the show too, but I had this fear about the movie. I was like, well, don't get too big 
because then I, then I skip the period that I'm actually most comfortable in, which is reflection and adjustment. Yeah. And I, I've always really wanted like a slow and steady career. <laughs> I find them. I, and I, and I watch, look, I watched my best friend go from a fucking nobody to the world to the, like a full spread in vogue and like, you know, on a hella TV shows and like, couldn't get on the subway in New York. Yeah. And like, it was both exciting and also fucking terrifying, yeah. terrifying, man. Like the, the way in which the perception of him became something that wasn't his own to control and continues to, you know, and luckily, like, I think he has a different level of autonomy now, the further we get away from Hamilton. But I remember the insanity of New York at that period. And it was not all like, oh, my God, my boy's famous. We can get no. him to any club we want. It was like, this is not in our control anymore. It's and this dark. is a little, it's weird. It, yeah. it's weird, man. And I can't imagine, you know, I've now met people who are famous like that all over the world. Yeah. You know, that they can't go anywhere because it's like that. And I... Now, now there is a navigating of what does it mean to be somewhat in the public eye. And obviously he and I in very different degrees, but now like a lot of my friends are in the, have made their careers to a place where they're now in the public eye and are responsible sort of to an international audience that knows them from things. I think suddenly now we're having a very different conversation with our art because it's not this prompt of like, oh, let's make a thing and no one's going to see it. So it doesn't matter. But now it's like, no, we're going to make a thing and I'll bet a bunch of people are going to see this. You know, certainly more people than we ever have before. Like when we put the TV show out, it was like more people are going to see the pilot of this show than have seen the movie. Wow. It's In all the years that it's like been that. out. Like, like Stars has like 30 million subscribers. Like yeah. 30 million people have not seen the movie. You know, it's going to get blasted out in a different way with, a, you know, the marketing budget of our show has got to be like 10 times the budget of our movie. Like one episode of our show is, is almost double the budget of the movie. Like it's, it's a different scale. And with every scale you have to go, what are we doing? What is our intention? How are we maintaining our sincerity? It's the same muscle. I'm like, I'm going to get on stage and I'm going to do a poem and I have to remember the muscles of why I'm here and how I maintain sort of a level of sincerity and accountability to the audience, whether it's a hundred people or 15 million people. And that's a crazy negotiation of a, of a muscle to try to adapt to a different level of accountability and visibility. And all I have to go on is like the six years I was running around as a poet and a musician where no one gave a fuck. And I was accountable to the hundred to 500 people that were at a show. Yeah. You know, and I'm curious, you know, because I don't want to gloss over the other amazing work that you've done. Uh, when, you know, all this gets done with Sundance, it gets distribution, it comes out. Was there a period of like, okay, I just did my own work. I want to take a period and be the guy that's just the actor and not having to worry about all these other creative elements. You know what I mean? And, and do the good Lord bird and do bad, you know, and, and was that something while maybe developing this into something else or, you know, how did that yeah. kind of happen? I mean, we were working on other scripts already. I think the blind spotting show really didn't come up. Into, like, we weren't immediately thinking about that. It was like, all right, well, let's go work. Let's let's start do to write another thing. movie. Or yeah. maybe I'm going to, yeah, you know, I, I want to do this kind of a TV show. We went and kind of sold a couple of things. Um, but, you know, the the big thing coming off of the the movie was that we had all lost money. You know, it's an indie movie. It's not like we got paid out. Yeah. You know, like we, we didn't make anything. And so for me, I'm like, well, I have a little bit of buzz and I need a living. 
leverage, you know, and the easiest thing to leverage was like my, my new agents. Cause I didn't have agents when I did the movie. So now I have like a team at WME yeah. who are like, we can get you acting jobs. And I was like, if that's going to be the thing that works fastest, let's do that. I need know? money. <laughs> let's try that. Like I, 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 I need rent. Like yeah. I don't have rent. Like motherfuckers are giving me the like, oh my God, you made a movie. Like you've made it. And I'm like, I'm so much more poor than I was when I had that marketing job. Yeah. <laughs> like I, would love, I would love to make it, you know, just some semblance of an income. Um, and so, you know, that what, what started to come up was, you know, these different roles. And I started auditioning in a way that I'd never really done before. I wasn't like auditioning all the time. It'd been a little bit of that in New York. Cause I had an agent there. I got an agent through the public theater who's still, who's Ken, who you were talking about earlier. Yeah. 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 So you were an innovative before. Got it. Yeah. yeah. So I was an innovative yeah. and Ken was like, you should be an actor. Like I'm going to send you in all these auditions. And I was like, I'm, I'm amazed that you see that. I mean, cool. Let's do it. And that was yeah. all before the movie. So we got back to that grind, but I'm a writer, man. Like I can't, I can't audition for shit that have shitty scripts and the stories are stupid and they're offensive or they don't make sense or they're yeah. contributing to a particular version of Hollywood that I'm kind of over and don't want to yeah. see. Like if I saw, if I saw a thing and the whole cast was like just super, super, super white and the script had nothing to say. I was just like, I don't really want to do this. Like yeah, it's just, I'm cool. Like, you know, I don't, I don't want to fight for this. And obviously your first couple roles, you don't really get paid very well. No. You know, the first couple of roles are like, you're just lucky to fucking be there. And they let you know you're, that. By you're doing it for the game. food and the credit, basically. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So for me, then I was like, well, if we're not going to get paid really well, then let's just audition for the stuff that like is, is meaningful and, and will be a really good, will really be a really good look um, and, and be an exciting project to be a part of. So at least I can point to and say like, look what kind of people I'm in, I'm in the company with. So let's yeah. look for projects that have actors in them that I really admire. And then came along um, uh, Bad Education with, um, with, with Hugh Jackman, Corey Finley, you know, and uh, Allison Jenny. And I was like, look, these are actors that I really, really respect. Yeah. And it was a, a particularly intimate role with Hugh. Um, and it, it stretched the limits of what I'd ever done. And I was like, this is a role I'd really like. Like, this feels so different from Miles. Like, now this seems like a really exciting follow-up. And now all those like, critics can go fuck themselves. <laughs> all, those, yeah. all those critics can go fuck themselves, yeah. They, they loved Kyle. <laughs> you know, suddenly they were like, oh, he is an actor. Oh, yeah, fuck you. I'm amazing in our movie. <laughs> I, kill, I kill that shit. And, you know, and... Uh, you know, so went off and did Bad Education, and that was amazing. Working with Corey, working with Hugh, working with that whole creative team was 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 brilliant. And like, you know, again, like a, just outside of my comfort zone, a, st a stretch as an actor to like figure out how to embody that character and and do it within the stakes of that movie, which is a a much bigger budget movie than I'd ever been a part of. Um, and to do it with a scene partner that's like Wolverine, you know. <laughs> yeah, speaking you of know? celebrity, you know what I mean? Yeah. Speaking yeah. of Hugh Jackman, one of the most yeah. famous actors in the world. Um, and then I went and did this this Nickelodeon series, Are You Afraid of the Dark? Just because I yeah. watched that show growing up, and my my Me buddy too. was the showrunner, and he was like, I wrote this villain role for you. You would get to wear sequin pants and essentially be like Willy Wonka and um, Jack Skellington all in one. And I was like those were the right things to say to me. I'm there. Yeah. <laughs> Did that. And that was another like stretch yourself, do something kind of weird and crazy and see what happens. And that was so, so fun and so rewarding. And then, and then good Lord bird came yeah. along. Uh, David had been casting it for a while. So I knew about the project for a, a while. And, um, uh, that came about really because 
Ethan and Ethan had seen David in a play in New York and become sort of a big fan of his. And it's, and we had all been at Sundance together. Ethan had direct written and directed a movie that was at Sundance the same year we were. And so he knew about blind spotting and had seen it. And I guess they were on the makeup truck in like episode one or two that David was there. Um, Cause David was already out there shooting. Yeah. And I, Ethan had been, looking for someone to play cook. And I guess he'd been trying to get some of his actor friends to play that role and realizing they were all kind of too old. And he was like, he was talking to David and he was like, look, I need somebody who was like a wild card. You can be a wild card character, but it's still really charming. Um, you know, and I, I just, it's hard to tell from tapes. It's hard to tell, you know, it's like, do we know anyone? And David goes, well, have you seen blind spotting? Um, and he goes, yeah, he goes, well, you know, Rafa is that, like that that's his that's his bag um and so uh he was like oh yeah yeah do you think he would do you think he would do it of course this is like yeah (laughs) (laughs) you know so ethan just called me and was like hey um do you know anything about this good lord bird show and i was like yeah i mean david's told me a lot about it also like you're amazing Um, and he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to send you these, I'm going to send you these scripts, you know, read the part and tell me if you're, you know, if you're interested and then we'll see if this is something that would work. And I read it was like, I mean, you read it like, yeah. it's a hell of a, it's a crazy role, oh, man. you know? I mean, and I did feel like, oh man, like I know how to be this dude in a scene. Yeah. Like I know how to, I know how to give that one liner, you know, and and like make the funny moment happen within a, within a scene that's really serious. Yeah, like the very um, dick church. Yeah. yeah. You know, like that, yeah. that yeah. Like I can, I can do that. And, um, and so when we got back on the phone, it was this like, you know, all right, well, how would you do it? And didn't know, cause sort of talk through it. And, and eventually he was just like, yeah, man. And, and Ethan is really big on like hiring friends and friends of friends. Like he's really about Love like, that. he's about energy and community. And he was like, David loves you. I loved you in that movie. I think you're going to be a big asset to the communal experience of the show. Yeah. I think we should do this. And I was like, I mean, if you, if you believe it, like I will give you fucking every ounce of me to do this role. Um, and so then the agents got into their thing and like, you know, you, you know, there, there are some people are trying to get me to be on tape. Other people are strong arming and being yeah. like, no, that Ethan kid. wants him, you know, they're doing all that. And then I think it was like a couple of days later and they were like, get on a plane. Okay. And went out there and joined this cast of these people. And suddenly I'm in all this like, you know, period specific, like cowboy gear. And I'm demanding that my coat be cool. Cause cook needs to have a cool coat. And then my hat needs to be better. Than, <laughs> my hat needs to be better than everyone else's. And I remember this great moment, you know, I got there on the first day of, for me. And I had this, this scene I had to shoot. It's a scene on a train. It's the second scene that cook is actually in, but it's the first one that I shot. And I'd never done the character for anybody. Um, and the line, you know, there's like a joke that I have to do on this, on this train car and I did it. And then we ran around to the monitor and I'm standing at the monitor watching myself going like, Oh my God, like, I hope this is like a convincing dude. I remember Ethan just walked up and he was like, I like him. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> what more do you need? <laughs> cool. You know, good, good for me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can rock with that. And then yeah. we just had fun, man. And I got to just like, Ethan really did become like a friend and a mentor on that shoot, man. He like, we would talk about the craft a lot and he really showed me what does it mean to be a leading man in a show and also like support your cast in a really beautiful way. And he let me play in the ways that I wanted to. And I also just got knocked on my ass a lot on that show. Like, like emotionally, career wise, like 
I had to figure out how to navigate directors that I didn't really fuck with or like their notes. I had to like, I had to learn like that. It really felt like between that and bad education and are you afraid of the dark? I really felt like I became an actor. That was your Juilliard. Yeah. Blind spotting was a cheat. Like I wrote it, you know, like I, 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 I feel like I delivered as an actor on it, but I also knew the material so much better than an actor ever would. Yeah. Whereas this, I actually had to learn it in real time and make decisions on it. And, and I got to work with Hugh and Ethan and other amazing actors on this show too, mind you, like yeah. Orlando Jones came in and was a guest. And there's a bunch of yeah, guest actors. Yeah. Maya Hawk came on good yeah. Lord bird. And like Maya and I became really great friends. Like she's an amazing fucking actor, like such an amazing actor. Yeah. And so being around those people was like, all right, I'm going to, I, what I do in those moments on sets now is I go into student mode hard. Yeah. I'm like, look, I want to be really good at this. And I've got to learn what that means. And so I've, I've gotten to be around really amazing performers and have really great mentorship all throughout my career. And I think a, a big thing that, and David and I say this all, all the time, we sort of say like all of our ships run on enthusiasm and our mantra is energy up, expectations down. And it's always like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give all my enthusiasm to the thing, but I'm also just not going to expect that I'm going to have some big moment from it and rather like going to put all of my, my desire for this to be fulfilling on whether or not I did the work in the moment to deliver, you know? And so cook was like a growing character throughout. Um, And it was really fun to every time we got into an episode, like really decide like Ethan would do this thing that he'd walk into a scene and like, dude, the man has presence. Like when he's on set, it's a different ball game, you know, but he's so generous also like I would do a thing and he'd kind of walk over and be like, Oh, it's fucking funny. Do that shit again. <laughs> and he'd kind of walk away, you know, and walk away and, and he would check in and be like, does that feel good? Does that, I mean, cause he wrote a lot of it, you know, he'd be like, does that, is that line kind of weird? And I'm like, well, maybe if we did it like this and be like, yeah, fuck it. Yeah. Do that shit. And then like kind of push me and then I'll, and then I'll do something back. Whatever happens would walk away and I go, this is art. Yeah. Like what we're doing right now is artistic, creative discovery of people who really know how to be artists in the moment and watching someone who's that far along in his career. Like Ethan is a master artist, you know, as is Hugh Jackman, as David is truly becoming in the moment. And as you are, you don't, don't discount yourself, man. You know, I I think that, I think that is, um, that is a category that should be assigned to you by someone younger who is getting out. I'm 31. Out of How you. old are you? <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? But, yeah, but I yeah, think yeah, like, yeah, it is yeah. what you're getting from it, you know, like yeah. in the same way that like, like Maya is a young actor on set, but I am learning so much from her in every scene that we have together and every conversation we're having offset. And I think what, what I have discovered as uh, what I love about being an actor, which is something that I'm still getting comfortable saying is that it is in many ways about it is it is one of the jobs one of the few jobs in art that is really a a a a job of service like you are servicing an artistic piece that needs to come to life and and need to figure out what does it mean to lift it from the page and all these other elements that are conspiring for you to have a one honest moment on camera and your job is to like take it the rest of the way and Ethan would talk about that a lot of just like that. And what Hugh would talk about a lot is generosity, man. Yeah. He was a fucking master actor. That dude shows up on set. He has memorized everyone's parts, everyone's parts, not just his. There's the first, the, the third scene I had with him was at a diner 
and I forgot my line and Hugh told me what it was. It was the most mortifying experience. (laughs) (laughs) That'll never happen again. But he did it in such a generous way where he was like, it's this and then I do this and then I do this. I'm like, great. All right, roll it again. You know? And he just held motherfuckers up. Like he comes in and he shows you so much love and generosity and so does Ethan. And watching those like master actors be generous, kind, and humble teaches you that no one has the right to have an ego. Nobody. No room for cunts, man. I mean, that's no, no, no room for these, for these difficult people that are harsh to actors that are disrespectful to women that are condescending to newer people that are rude to the staff. Like there's never an excuse for that because these guys who operate at the highest level are still in discovery mode and are still like thorough collaborators. And I'm just so glad that like my early experiences as an, as, as an actor on this level have been with, like brilliant, humble artists. Because now like when I, I'm charged with running a set, which I was for blind spotting, like I have no patience for that shit. Totally. Like, a, like you know, anyone with an ego is out. Yeah. I love Because you just, you, you, have to, you have to protect the vibe. It's not just how it should times. be. It's how it needs to be. And, and how does it feel having the show out into ether now, man? I mean, is that cool? You know, having another iteration of this thing continue on? I don't know. It's kind of like releasing music. Like you're not yeah. there when people listen to it. So it's kind of like, I don't even know what it, you know, and yeah. I won't, I don't look on, I refuse to look at like the Twitter hashtag of it and stuff. Cause I know that I've done that for shows oh, that I dude. love that I aren't mine. And like my own podcast comments. Oh, I get it. Yeah. God, I can't get pummeled that way. Like I can't, yeah. you know, the, the important criticisms will, will get written about or will get back to me. But like, there's this overwhelming love, which is amazing, yeah. but also visibility in a way that it's never had before, which also means that you're just a part of pop culture now and you have to take all the good with the bad. And so I think I, I have realized over time that in my early 20s, I think fame was really like essential for me. I was like, oh, that's how I have a career and I'm, I become a, a mainstream artist and then I, then I get to be on that level. And man, it's the total opposite in my 30s, man. I'm like, I, I, if there's a way for me to do this without ever being famous, that would be clutch. Like fame is this like weird totally contractual weird. obligation to the thing. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm excited mostly for everyone else. Like Helen is brilliant. Jasmine is brilliant. Candace is brilliant. Jalen is brilliant. Benjamin Earl Turner is one of the most phenomenal artists I've ever seen. And those people being in the public eye, many of which for the first time and Helen in a very different way, that is wildly exciting to me. And then every once in a while, I'm reminded that I am also in this show. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, you know? <laughs> brother. Man, I'm 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 so fucking proud of you, man. And and you're on such amazing strides, and and the best is yet to come, dude. And and dude, you know, man, I, sure. I, I I really I, I, you are a master, man. I really look up to you. And and dude, if you you know whatever you do next, I, I would love to fucking audition for you, man. I, I love. Oh you. man, I would love that, man. And yeah. I'll like I. I am one of them cats that will fully remember that shit. Oh, dude. <laughs> I, hey, I'm not, I'm not above reading for a part. I'll fucking, I'll, I'll, I'll fucking oh, yeah, do it. Oh, yeah, man. I'll do it first, I love baby. It. Yeah. I, I love, you know, th- th- it's been a really exciting process to like be in the chair where you're watching people audition, having yeah. also been on the side of auditioning. And you see, I'll tell you, man, you learn so much about what a good and bad audition is when you're casting the thing. Yeah. 
And like all these things that I would worry about when I was auditioning of like, is my background right? Did I stumble on a line? Did all these things that I think there's some like ambiguous board of approval on the other side that cares bro? like in, in for casting our shit, I don't give a fuck if you only get 50% of that shit, right? Just just show me some choice energy. Yeah. Yeah. Make a fucking, make a fucking choice. Yeah. That, that is interesting that you believe in. And like, cause that first round is just, man, that first round is just to get people back. Like of any advice for auditioners now is just like for that first tape, that cold tape, just make a, not, and it doesn't have to be an extreme choice, but just a choice that you believe in because all you want to do is get into that second round Cause that second round is personal, man. Now you're talking to the showrunners and the writers and stuff. And you can like, now, now they're also judging, like, are you going to be cool to work with? Cause I got to bring you into my world, yeah. you know? And I, that second round is a sweet spot, man. So like I, for me now I've been, if I audition for stuff, I do one scene hella fucking well. And I don't mm-hmm. like, if they send four, I'm like, I'm going to do one or two. Yeah. I'm a body these shits, but I'm gonna do one or two. And if you like me, I'll come back and I'll do everything you want. Yeah. But that. for that first round draft pick, like, you know, 20 seconds into my first tape. So don't Whether make me I'm do all four of these. Yeah, yeah. Don't make me do all four of these. Yeah. Like just, you know, yeah. because that, and it really is, it's exciting, man. I want, you know, a bunch of my peers and, and like mentors and shit audition for the show. And it's, it's really humbling to be like, Oh, I love seeing people that are not above the shit that are like, Oh no, I'll, I'll read. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll try and see if I'm the right fit. And, you know, you do, it is this beautiful experience of collaboration of like, Hey, we're trying to make a thing that the equation, you know, equals magic. Like it's an unquantifiable thing. So when I watch an actor read shit that I've written, man, like it's, or that another writer in our company has written, it is wildly, um, illuminating yeah. even if they don't get the part like you might read for a thing that, that we're doing and whether or not you get the part is sort of like that's that's the secondary like icing on the cake but the artistic exchange is I made a thing for someone to perform you performed it and now I get to watch it and decide how I feel about what I gave you to perform yeah. and it is this wildly beautiful artistic exchange that no one talks about like in working on the show I watched hundreds of people read my writing in their own way. And I learned so much about my own writing from that process. And I like, Oh, all of them, like the gratitude of that. Right. So when I, when they, when I bump into them and stuff, I'm like, you read for my show. And the first layer is always like, they think I'm going to be like, Oh, I'm not going to make it weird. Cause you didn't get the part, but I'm always like, no, like, fuck all I'm that. Like, like yeah, thank yeah. you for doing that. Yeah, like, yeah. thank you for doing that. That's, yeah. That was, that, that took, courage and i learned something from you doing it yeah. you know That's and so i remember cool. you and isn't that really important <laughs> you <Yeah>. know that <laughs> <laughs> i remember the read have you you've heard that breaking bad story about um about how uh how he got that role that it well, was like um, aaron, aaron or brian uh brian cranson no tell me. brian i'm gonna butcher it you should you should go and read up about it yeah. but it was like it was like the dude wrote an episode um vince vonnegut is that his name vince gilligan um, gilligan richmond uh, guy wrote, as well richmond guy oh yeah. shit there you go yeah yeah um he like was a writer on like this i'm gonna butcher this but it's just like this X-Files. he was like a writer on like lawn oh x-files yeah. that's what yeah. it was this yeah. writer on x-files he wrote an episode that brian cranston was on and then whatever 20 years later he writes breaking bad for fucking brian cranston 
Yeah. Like, did, like now that you say that, like, I didn't know that. How, yeah. And I do think like sometimes you meet an actor that is not right for the thing you're working on, but you go, that person is yeah. really fucking good. Yeah. Like they're really, really good. And and then 20 years later, you might be like, you know who we need? You yeah. know who's the perfect person for this? Find this person. Yeah. Um, and I do think there is like this ecosystem of collective artistic exchange that like through that auditioning process, you're also just like meeting the talent pool. And making fans, um, you know, that's the goal, you know, at the end of the day, man, is is just to make fans and, and friends and, and whatever. On both back. sides, like yeah. us becoming yeah. fans of all these people, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, dude, two final questions and, and thank you for your time, Raphael. It's, yeah, yeah. it's been such an honor and a pleasure, man. And, and when you're near, good luck cutting this down, <laughs> dude. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not cutting a thing. If it's cool with you, bro. Um, <laughs> you know, man. Uh, so, so if, if you could go back and tell, you know, the young 16, 17 year old Rafa, who was maybe a little disillusioned with traditional schooling and, and, and wanted to find a way into this, you know, creative realm and, you know, things aren't working out in the normal sense. Any words of wisdom you would have for those people in similar paths? Uh, no, no. If I had gotten some other advice, it would have went some other way. And it, you know, I, I'm, I'm, a, somebody asked me the other day, it was my friend, Sarah Kay, who's this amazing writer. She goes, do you, do you live with any regrets? And I answered, um, almost exclusively, (laughs) 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 you know, I think they're all regrets to some degree. Um, but I think that, you know, a collection of, of regrets that you learn something from are really valuable. And so I I wouldn't steer them any other way. Although I, you know, there's like the, you know, there's the version of you that's like, oh, I wish I could have had like a, you know, I wish I didn't learn that lesson by creating this or doing this or whatever. Falling on my face. Yeah. You know, I like, it's like that period now where like, you know, people's like histories are coming back to haunt them where they're like, oh yeah, when you were 19, you said this and we like, and the internet gets all up in arms. And I'm like, yeah, that motherfucker's older now. (laughs) You know, he grew. Like like people should, you know, people should, I mean, obviously within reason, but like people should fuck up a lot, you know, and be short-sighted and be small-minded and be all of those things. And the world should slap them in the face about it and and learn from it and i i think all of those stumbles were extremely valuable and now i have firsthand experience from hundreds of them to pass on to the next person so they can skip five years of stumbling and and learn a little bit from you know but but i think that's what mentorship is about and i do think that's one-to-one so i don't think there's like blanket advice for anyone yeah um but i probably would tell my younger self to smoke less black and milds you know i think my lung capacity is probably cut in half because of those but (laughs) other than that (laughs) love that and 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 final question you know obviously we're we're just emerging out of a really dark time for a lot of people where where everyone had to kind of give up, you know, their, their pursuit of what they love, whether it's, you know, in the arts or not. And everyone is struggling and doing their, you know, own version of cutting out Carl's Jr. coupons. And and for the people that are finally starting to pursue again, but are struggling, you know, for the people that are just hitting that ceiling and in their own version of LA and, and having to take their own version of a, a fashion job, you know, and still want to do this thing. Any words of wisdom you might have for those struggling out there? Um, kill your arbitrary benchmarks. 
that. You know, we, we do a lot of time of like, well, by 25, so-and-so had done this or yeah. by 40, someone had done this or, you know, well, if I haven't done this by then, maybe I'm not X, Y, Z. And I, I do think that the, the journey of, of being a great artist has nothing to do with money or fame or the amount of people that see it. But the one thing you can control is your own growth as an artist. And it generally won't come by any map drawn before. And so I, I mostly just encourage a lot of my peers and younger folks that are artists that I'm around when I feel that rut coming for them, that, um, there is a there is a, a a violence you can do to yourself to derail your own art and to resist it, and that violence is um, um, the the sickness of comparison. Um, to look at people around you, compare and despair. To look at people around you, to look at people ahead of you, and judge your own artistic value based on um, a trajectory that is so dissimilar from your own that only the largest temples could ever truly be compared to. And that that is um, not a reliable comparison narrative and to just abandon it entirely. And it'll allow you to be happy for the people that are successful around you before you and after you. And it'll also, you know, afford you in your, in your strongest moments to just focus on how you can be a better artist, both in, the selfishness of your own craft and the generosity of that same craft simultaneously. Yeah. Beautiful. I think this might be the first time where the own question that I asked the advice I needed today, man. And, and <laughs> ah, damn, fuck. That hit me deep. Shit. I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> fuck. All right. Ahead, I'm going to just get crying over here now, dude. But uh, Rafael Castell, from, from the bottom of my heart, brother, this was one of the greatest pleasures of my life. And uh, dude, please, when you're in New York city, look, look me up, man. I would love to come. I to will, man. Class. And, and I meant that, you know, if there's anything, please, I'd, I'd love to audition and let's do something together one day, man. It would be an immense honor. And I am so fucking excited for all that's to come for you, dude. It's thanks, man. Just getting started, man. And, and really dude, you are an artist through and through and the best is yet to come. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. This was wonderful. I'm, I'm glad we got this time together. It means so much to me, man. And, and come back on, all right? I will. Thanks, right, brother. Dude. Much love. Have a good one. If you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.